Father, thank you um, that you are always speaking and you are always speaking through your word. And I just pray that you would speak through Claire and I, you would fill her with your spirit um, and that you would just help us to hear um, everything that you're saying through her um, to us as individuals and as a church this afternoon, I pray. Amen. Thank you. Hello there. The light right in my eye up there. <laughs> Lovely to see you here this afternoon. Um, my name's Claire. I'm I think most of you know me, I'm lay minister here. It's like buses, isn't it? I haven't preached for ages, and this is my third time in about six weeks, which is a great privilege, lovely. And as Will says this afternoon, we're back in Matthew 7, and we're getting towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of chapter 6, which must have been a long time ago now, we've, just, we've had Jesus' injunction to seek first the kingdom of God, and you might call this the core of his teaching, and it comes at the end of a long section on the believer's character and behaviour. So how we as individual Christians should conduct ourselves. But now in chapter 7, Matthew's starting with a section on relationships in the kingdom. So how we interact with each other. So I'll read it. I'm going to read it in the NIV, which is imagine, I imagine what will come up there. Um, but I have the privilege of having the message um, side by side, and I probably will quote from the message as I go along. But um, So, <laughs> that is not me. That's left over from this morning. <laughs> there we go. So, Matthew 7, beginning at verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. I don't know what about you, but it seems to me that there's an awful lot of judging about, isn't there? Um, we, that picture you saw, we were asked to judge to, to kind of give an instant response to various images. And there's a lot of that about in the print media, on TV, and in the press, but especially, it seems, on social media. Now, I'm not on social media. Um, I'm not going to ask you if you're on Twitter or any of those other things. But I understand that there is a lot of judging on social media, people expressing an opinion, people being really horrible to each other, and, and maybe it's because there's, there's the screen in the way, isn't there? You might not be horrible to somebody who you could see in the room, but if you see their image or what they've done on a screen, that's rather different. And it can be very destructive. It's used as a weapon in many instances to undermine and hurt people. Um, I guess most of us have heard of coercive control. So that's when um, one half of a partnership uses undermining various other techniques to subdue the other half. It's usually men, but not always. Um, to subdue the other half of the partnership, to get them in their control, to, to make them do what they want to do. So you deprive them of relationships outside that partnership. You undermine them constantly, tell them how terrible they are, how terrible their parenting is, 
how awful they are, and people begin to believe that if they're told it often enough. The dictionary, I always think when you resort to the dictionary when you're looking at a, a sermon, it, it suggests that you're finding it hard to find things to say. But anyway, the dictionary defines judging as to appraise critically. Well, obviously, this should be on the basis of evidence. If you're appraising something, you need to look at it carefully and, and get evidence. Judges and competitions have a set of criteria to apply, don't they? Um, I don't personally watch Strictly, but I know lots of people do. And, of course, all sorts of other competitions, skating, dancing, all those sorts of things, they have judges, and, and you get a mark, don't you? Um, and they have a set of criteria to apply. They observe, consider, and then they produce a score. And hopefully they have some skill and experience to bring to that, and their judgments is meant to be unbiased. I used to help with discernment for the diocese, so when people are called to minister in the diocese, well, anywhere in the Church of England, but I have experience of, of the Diocese of Bristol, um, there, there's a system for helping people to discern what God's calling is for them. Um, that's done on an individual basis, whether, whether somebody in the diocese, an individual, used to be called the DDO, I don't suppose they are anymore. Um, and then you, you go through a process at the end of that within the diocese where various people with some experience help you to discern what the way forward might be. So you're not only looking at somebody's um, attitudes, performance, skills, all of that, but you're also prayerfully hoping to discern what God's will is for them. I've stopped doing it because I just can't concentrate hard enough for that long anymore. But anyway, <laughs> it was a privilege to do it when I was doing it. I don't think Jesus is thinking about this sort of judgment, and neither of us is he thinking of the judgment in a court of law. Um, I think in the past there have been people who've said this means that you know Christians shouldn't be subject to jurisprudence. Um, the Bible says do not judge or you'll be judged, so we're not to set ourselves up in judgment for other people. I'm sure Mike would disagree with that. <laughs> um, Society needs to be regulated. There have to be consequences for wrongdoing. We have to decide who needs to be punished and who doesn't. So, that's, not, that's what he's not talking about. What is Jesus talking about? The message has for verse 1, don't pick on people. Don't jump on their failures. Don't criticise their faults. John Stott uses the word censoriousness. And I think this is what Jesus is talking about. And do we recognize this as something that goes on in our families, at work, in our friendship groups, dare I say it, even in our church? Do we personally have a critical spirit? Have we suffered at the hands of others who have a critical spirit? It, ironically, it's easy to see this as a fault in others, isn't it? We need to examine ourselves. Jesus warns us that if we criticise others, it may well rebound on us. The message has the critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. Right, Pat. So this is a warning of personal consequences if we judge others. But of course, it's also damaging to relationships and to the community. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, and so on. If love is to be the glue that holds the Christian family together in the kingdom of God then that must be what we aim for. And it isn't kind, it isn't patient to criticise others. And I wonder what criticises the church in the mind of others. 
it's a very long time ago now, but when I first went into general practice as a trainee, the person who trained me, who was actually my contemporary when we were medical students, uh, had been a choir boy. He'd been a member of the Church of England. Um, and when I knew him, he certainly wasn't. Uh, and I asked him once, what, what was it that, you know, he didn't like about the church? And he said, well, they're all horrible to each other, aren't they? They can't agree on anything. Why would I want to be a member of something like that? And I've never forgotten that. And Jesus says, this is how people will know that you're my disciples, by the love that you show for one another. And that doesn't mean, I think, that we should never make any sort of judgment. It doesn't mean that we should never criticise. Constructive criticism can be very helpful, can't it? I hope if you have comments to make, positive or negative, about this talk, you'll feel free to tell me. We can only grow and develop if we're aware of our weaknesses and deficiencies, and wiser brothers and sisters can be very helpful in this regard. When I was training, when I was training GP registrars all those years ago, we were taught always to start with the positive comments before we went on to point out things that could have been done better. People are much more receptive in this way, aren't they, and less likely to have their self-esteem shattered. The command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, to suspend our faculties. It's a plea to be generous. And Jesus, unsurprisingly, is perceptive about what's often the underlying cause of our critical spirit. We subconsciously leap on the deficiencies in others that we actually have in ourselves. Think about that. Hence this lovely picture of the speck in the brother's eye and the plank in our own. Now, hypocrisy is a strong word, and none of us wants to be called a hypocrite. That's what Jesus called the Pharisees, wasn't it? In Luke 18, we read a sort of application of this. Jesus um, tells a parable about the Pharisee and the publican, who were both praying in the synagogue. And the Pharisee stands up and talks to God from a position of superiority and says, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And the publican says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, who goes home justified? Well, the publican does, because he knows what his standing is before God. The Pharisee is a hypocrite and assumes that he's okay. So how can we become aware of the metaphorical planks in our eyes, and how do we deal with them? Well, I guess when we spend more time with Jesus, focusing on him and his character we can become more aware of our own deficiencies. That's what we've just done in confession, isn't it? So ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you need to change. Ask forgiveness for failures and persistent sin. We need to concentrate on our own growth in holiness, on our own hopefully becoming more like Jesus and not so much on others. It struck me that a regular spiritual audit is a good tool for this, and perhaps this time of the year is a good time to do it. I googled spiritual audit, and there's reams and reams of suggestions on Google. So if you want to do a spiritual audit and it's not something you've done before, there are plenty of suggestions as to how you should go about it. But it's basically about reviewing your relationship with Jesus thinking about how much time we spend with him, the spiritual practices we're using, whether we might start something new or stop something. I wonder if, if you, you know, think this is a great idea. It might be a good idea to do it with a trusted friend or a prayer partner. That helps with accountability. If 
our relationships are governed by love, by concern for the brother or sister before ourselves, then should we not be wanting the best for that brother or sister, helping them to be the best that they can be? Now, the phrase that springs to mind and what tends to be quoted in this context is admonish one another in love, isn't it? It probably needs to be said the other way round. Only in love admonish one another not in order to feel superior or to cover up our own shortcomings. We should probably be quick to praise or affirm and slow to admonish. If we're concerned for the truth, we also need to be wise about what others say, not accepting everything but using our judgment. Paul in 1 Thessalonians instructs the early church to test everything, hold on to the good, avoid every kind of evil. We can be clear about what we do and do not believe without being critical or condemnatory of the one who expresses things that we believe to be wrong or things that we differ about. The way to help unbelievers or those of other faiths is not to condemn them, but to make relationships, find common ground, work towards changing their beliefs and opinions. Um, the last time I was speaking to you guys, um, I... I was remembering that I'd read a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, in which um, a devout Muslim is gradually brought to see the truth of the gospel because he makes relationships, or relation Christians make relationships with him. They listen to him. They love him. They argue with him. They give him opportunities to look at the scripture. It's a long process. And we're justified in doing this because we have the other person's interests at heart, not because we believe we've arrived spiritually or in, other, or in any way perfect. The Christian life, we know very well, don't we, should be one of humility and service. We follow our master Jesus in that. We should be known as those who put others first, willing to offer any sort of help to others rather than criticizing or undermining. Is this how outsiders see the church? I've already said, told you the story of my GP trainer and his opinion about the church. Would the church here at Redland look any different if we were all to deal with the planks in our eyes and ask for God's help to put aside our critical spirits? And having a critical spirit isn't just about our interaction with another individual, is it? It's about what we say to each other about maybe the leadership or other things in the church. Jesus goes on from this little homily to warn against sharing the good news with those who really, really don't want to know, dogs and pigs. Now, it's quite hard to see any obvious connection between this and the previous teaching, but I guess we need discernment, don't we, if we're going to decide who are the dogs and pigs. At what point we should stop persisting with fruitless evangelism? The message suggests that this is about treating the gospel seriously. Don't joke about it. Banter and silliness give no honour to God, is how Eugene Peterson translates this. I suspect that for most of us, just sharing the gospel is quite hard. We're unlikely to be silly about it. Those we share the gospel with might treat it with contempt, and this might be a sign that we should not persist. If you, if you try to feed pearls to swine, they're not going to eat them, are they? They'll probably trample them underfoot. 
However, it is worth thinking about how we might prepare the ground if we're in a position to share Jesus with a friend or family member. We should pray for them, shouldn't we? Find out what they already know or believe. Have they had any prior experience of church? Not surprisingly, church outreach is more effective with those who've already had some experience, maybe through baptism of a child, a child at church preschool, a relative's funeral, or something like that. Somebody actually did some research years and years ago about that. As we build up relationships in the community, we'll have more opportunities to share the gospel, and it's more likely to be positively received. I guess yelling the gospel at an anti-Christian mob is likely to get you in serious trouble, not win souls for the kingdom. Although we shouldn't limit God, should we? He can do things unexpectedly sometimes. But I wonder if there's also a suggestion here that in trying to make the gospel relevant, we risk watering it down and seeming to pander to contemporary culture. The, the message says, don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. I'm not sure that happens. I think when we were students, there was a tendency to do this. Let's, let's make the gospel relevant by putting it in words and, and ideas that are more acceptable to, um, to the, the general atmosphere at the time. I don't know, maybe that happens now and I'm just not aware of it. And I don't think this is an encouragement to give up witnessing to unbelievers at the first opportunity. We don't need any encouragement to do that, do we? This will be a rare circumstance, and mostly we're to persist prayerfully. Jesus instructed his disciples to shake the dust off their feet as they left a community which rejected their message. And Paul himself went off to the Gentiles when his fellow Jews at Corinth rejected the gospel. So we do have precedent. Even if we stop talking the good news, we can continue to live it out and pray for not yet believing colleagues, friends and families. This teaching, I'm sure, is for exceptional situations. Our normal Christian duty is to be patient and persevere with others, as God has patiently persevered with us. So going back to verse 1, I think we can see this certainly as a plea to wider society, can't we? To be kinder and more positive. And it's a reminder to us as individuals and as a church family to think before we criticise others, about our own faults and shortcomings. Amen.